a very warm welcome to this Mastering the Game of Life podcast with your host, Paul Lowe. Paul offers wisdom, insights and tips for living a healthy, meaningful, purposeful life. On the back of overcoming extreme adversity, Paul has a proven track record of achieving life-enhancing results. He offers empowering advice and guidance to help people develop a mindset for success so that they can live with more happiness and prosperity. Through his Mastering the Game of Life podcast and books, Paul also helps people to get their own inspirational messages and powerful stories out into the world, as well as being involved in supporting many charitable organisations in their development, fundraising and projects. Hello listeners and welcome to this Mastering the Game of Life podcast episode. This mini-series of disciplines, the 10 disciplines of love and probably by now you know what I'm going to say next is to introduce the, um, I don't know if host is the right word, I think it is actually the host or certainly the expert on the topic, Kelly Branley from Switzerland. Kelly, very, very warm welcome to you. Thanks so much, Paul. Great to talk to you again. And um, yeah, absolutely. And uh, I introduce you there as the host because I think in many respects you are and uh, yeah, Discipline number four, honourable language. Tell us about that, Kelly. So discipline number four is about learning to be conscious of the words you use and how you talk to your partner in a relationship. And this, I think, out of all the disciplines, this is probably the one that I see couples struggling with the most out of all of them, uh, getting their, their language in line, the things that they say, and you're learning uh, not to use their words and their tongue as a weapon. So mm. I think this is going to be a really interesting discussion today. Okay, so before we go on to that uh, deep, deeper dive, Kelly, let me ask this question that, you know, when we speak about our energy and the power of words and the language we tell ourselves, you know, we, we, we know that how, how critical language is, that self-talk, um, even even to the point where... We have to be careful, you know, if we, if we make a mistake, um, you know, saying, oh, Paul, you are stupid. Why did you do that? And even though we kind of pass that off by laughing at ourselves, there's a very, very strong train of thought, Kelly, is there not, that says, well, actually, don't don't even use that in sort of humour or assumed humour, because that language will embed within the subconscious. So I just wondered, you know, using that as a, as a foundation, Kelly, you know, even what we might think is banter to our partner, does that same level of critical um, nature of that language become apparent as it would with ourselves? if that all makes sense? Definitely. Language is so critical and you're probably familiar with the um, triad that Tony Robbins talks about a lot. Your was it your focus, your physical posture, and your language are the mm. three factors that influence our state of mind and our state of being the most. And if you change any one of those, you can change your state. And for me, that that highlights how critically important language is to how we feel about ourselves, what's going on in the world around us, our relationships, our careers. So. I think it's a great place to start because language is absolutely fundamental to our experiences. And then if you link language, words, and emotion 
you actually get something that can be burned into your subconscious mind for for eternity. And we don't realize how critically important, but I think everyone's had this experience. Somebody at some point in your life said something to you, and it could be a one-off statement. It could have been a teacher that said, you know, maybe you were stupid, or it could have been a coach who said, you're going to make it big one day, something like that. And that was burnt into our memory and has imprint or imprinted on our mind of what we can or cannot achieve in life. And so it's so important to be conscious of language. Mm, definitely. So what about when we do, Kelly, have what we might initially perceive as banter? You know, if I said, oh, Kelly, you are silly or you are stupid, you know, but kind of back that up with a with a with a laugh. I mean, does that that laugh, does that excuse it or is that not acceptable? No, really not. Um, we're going to talk about it um, at some point. I don't know if now is the time, but we're going to talk about the four horsemen. And one of the four horsemen is um, contempt. And exactly that using sarcastic language or hostile humor um, is actually a sign of contempt, which means you're trying to put yourself um, above the other person, make yourself bigger and it's a sign of disrespect. So it isn't um, okay to be using that kind of um, language and tone within a relationship. So, so maybe since we've started there, <laughs> why don't we um, sort of go through the four horsemen? Because I think it's such a fundamental concept for people to understand. Hmm. And yeah. the four horsemen, well, first of all, the four horsemen of the apocalypse, um, just for a little bit of, of history on that, it's actually a metaphor that comes from the New Testament which depicts the end of time. And Dr. John Gottman, who is one of the um, pioneers within the field of relationship research, if you haven't come across him, I highly recommend his work. He created something called the Love Lab. And uh, basically it's an apartment complex where he brings couples in and he studies um, them for a period of, of hours or days. And he's been able to, through his research, predict with over 90% certainty if a couple will stay together long-term or not. And what he's done is he's taken this metaphor of the four horsemen and he's linked it to four types of communication that happen in intimate relationships, which predict the end of that relationship. I'm going to say that again, the four horsemen, these four types of communication can actually predict whether a couple will stay together long-term or they will split. And these four mm -hmm. horsemen are criticism, contempt, defensiveness, and stonewalling. And so let's uh, go into these in a little bit more detail. So the first one we talk about is criticism. And I think this is a common one and people will joke about this. Um, you know, you may joke about a nagging spouse or, you know, um, you can never do anything right. But this is a really bad sign in a relationship if criticism is the overriding sort of way to communicate with your partner. And so how do you know that criticism is, is happening in a relationship? Well, you hear a lot of the, the you statements. So you always do this. You never do this. You're the type of person who does or why are you so you know, like your mother, like your father, lazy, whatever. So these types of statements are really the telltale signs that criticism is going on in a relationship. 
And the reason it can be so detrimental is because criticism actually attacks the person's personality or character. And you're really putting them down and devaluing them, which is very different than a complaint, which focuses on a specific action or behavior. And the intent of criticism is ultimately to really win an argument. And so criticism is so damaging because it's almost like an assault on a person. And what it evokes in terms of emotion is rejection, hurt, and worthlessness. Those are not feelings you want to be eliciting in somebody that you claim to be loving and um, supporting. And if I can just come in at that point, Kelly, and and actually not just about using that language to our partner or our spouse, but actually that says something about who we are, doesn't mm-hmm. it? Yeah. First and foremost, it's not necessarily about, you know, the other half, so to speak, but it's a real strong indicator of that mirroring of, of where our world's at, isn't it? It is. And yesterday I shared with you, um, an idea or like I said, a tool that I use in my coaching, which is about contracts with yourself, about making a contract with yourself to not do something in the future. And this criticism, self-criticism is something that I see a lot in my clients where they will criticize themselves and, you know, I'm such a loser or I can never have a relationship or whatever it is, this repeating, looping, negative criticism of themselves. And I get them to make a contract um, from that moment forward to stop using such um, belittling language on themselves because it is mm. so damaging. And with children, with, I mean, call coworkers and stuff, I mean, with everybody you're in relationship with, it's really important to become aware of the times when you're using criticism and blame. And I've got two sort of tools which can help people um, because trying to replace a bad habit is not always so easy, but it's much easier if we replace a bad habit with a good habit. Mm. And so there's two things that you can really easily do to move away from criticism. The first one is to make a complaint without blame. And you do this by using I statements. So instead of saying, can you please hurry up? You're going to make us late. You say, you know, I would really appreciate it if we could leave in 10 minutes. It's important to me that we get there on time. And you can see in those two statements, there's a very different underlying feeling coming through that. One is, yeah, you always make us late. You're not good enough. And the other one is expressing a need in a complaint without blaming. Mm. That word need, Kelly. I, I was I was just having a little smile to myself, thinking, I wonder how long we'll go before we mention that word need. <laughs> it's been ten minutes, nearly Did we eleven go that minutes. Long this time? We we went that long. That's well, that's got to be the record. But we move on. We move on. Well, well, not actually. I don't want to move on too quickly because I think it is so important that people get much better at expressing their needs in a really effective way. And as we're talking about communication here, I have a very uh, favorite model that I use, and it's based on the work of uh, a family therapist named Stan Tatton. And I've renamed it. I don't know what he calls it, but I call it the SSNA model because it's easy to remember. And SSNA stands for state, story, need, and ask. 
And basically what this means is if you want to express a need rather than um, criticizing your partner, what you first do is you state a fact. So you state what exactly has happened. So not you always leave the dirty dishes in the sink, but there's dirty dishes in the sink. It's a fact. And then you tell the story that you're telling around that. So we all sort of make a story. My partner left dirty dishes in the sink means to me that they don't care about me and they don't respect my time. Um, that's the story you're telling that may have nothing to do with why they left the dirty dishes in the sink. Then you state your need. Um, so I would really appreciate it if you could put them in the dishwasher. And then you ask for how that person could really, or could do that in a very concrete way. So putting them in the dishwasher, could you put them in the dishwasher in the next 20 minutes, for example? And so in this SSNA model, it's a very easy step-by-step -step process to move away from criticizing and to expressing your needs in a way that somebody can then actually fulfill that need for you because they know exactly what they need to do. Mm, yeah, yeah, I can see, yeah. So let's uh, go back to contempt because I think contempt is probably of the four horsemen, the most detrimental of all of them. And contempt can really sneak up on you and sneak up in a relationship. And it's the most difficult one I would say to come back from, but it isn't impossible. And so what the, what's really dangerous about contempt is that once you get into this being the sort of overwhelming uh, atmosphere, let's say in your relationship, is it's almost nearly impossible to see positive qualities in your partner once you've developed content for them. So it's so, uh, so important to recognize this when it starts to emerge and to do something about it. And when you have contempt and you feel like your partner has lost respect for you, um, you start to feel that they can actually despise you and it creates a feeling of worthlessness. And I mean, I think it's obvious to everybody, if you're in a relationship where your partner is eliciting feelings of worthlessness in you, that's not a relationship you want to stay in very long. Mm -hmm. So how can we, first of all, how does contempt show up? We touched on a few of them. So being disrespectful, sarcasm is a very dangerous one. A lot of people think that sarcasm is pure humor. And sometimes sarcasm is very funny, but when it's used um, directed at somebody, it can be very damaging. And then this hostile humor, name calling is another one that shows up uh, a lot. Mimicking, and then even the sort of uh, nonverbal body language cues, such as eye rolling and, and sneering, those are also very, very damaging when you're speaking to your partner and they're constantly rolling their eyes at you. So an important way to stop this or sort of the antidote for contempt is to do what we um, talked about in the last episode, which was flooding. And again, flooding is about bringing back positive memories. And so when I'm working with a couple, I always ask them the question is, tell me the story of how you met and how you fell in love. Uh, because in the moment when we're looking at what's going on sort of in the most recent past, there isn't a lot of positivity there. And so we need to go back further to find those positive memories and then flood those positive memories. And once I can get a couple into a state where they can remember why they fell in love and you sort of start to create this little spark again, 
it's then possible to then fan that spark and to rekindle the love. But it's important to really get that positive memory back first. Mm, very, very interesting. Yeah, I can see how this all fits together. And, and certainly from my past, um, Kelly, I, I can relate to on a personal level quite a lot. Of, well, I can relate to all of it, actually. Mm. Yeah. And for many couples, you get into the phase where actually talking doesn't make things better. It just continually makes things worse. Mm. And so one of the solutions is to pull yourself out of that. And, uh, you know, you can do that with the help of somebody, but it's also possible for a couple to learn that when they get stuck in that state of negative looping discussion, that they learn to just sort of take a break and uh, reconvene at a later time when they can then have a much clearer head and start from a place of positivity. So not always easy, but definitely possible. Mm. Which brings us to the, the third of the four horsemen, which is defensiveness. And defensiveness is really a way of not taking responsibility for your own mistakes and falling into that victimhood role. So what a lot of people do is they try to then reverse the blame back on their partner. And how this shows up in relationships is you, you hear that it's not my fault or your partner comes with a complaint and you come back with a counter complaint that is irrelevant to what they've just said. So it sort of it's as if you've ignored everything they've said um, and then come with your own complaint. Or my favorite one is the yes, but. So uh, basically the rule there is anything you say in a sentence before the word but becomes irrelevant. So honey, I absolutely agree with everything that you're saying, but I really disagree. And these are the reasons why. So the yes, but is a telltale sign that you're not truly listening to what your partner's saying and you're, you're focused on giving your defense back to something that's been said to you so and I have another a solution for this one as well and uh, it's again from from my friendly therapist Dan Tatton he's written a bunch of great books um, on the topics of relationships so listeners if you want a, a good reference or he's a good one to check out and he has um, an approach um, that I really like it's um, called the customer service approach and basically, I think I've mentioned this in a previous podcast, but I'll go through it quickly again. It's when somebody comes to you with a complaint that you need to move into the role of the customer service representative and you need to accept their complaint and do everything in your power to solve that complaint for them. And I like to use the word generosity here. So to give generously as much as you can. And in relationships, this is the way to break this defensiveness pattern is to really, you know, stay in the moment, listen to what's being said and do everything that you can to make it right for your partner. And then if you have a counter complaint at that moment, it's not the point to bring it up. You should then set aside a separate time where you can discuss your complaint with the expectation that your partner will listen to you equally and do their best to solve your problem. Any thoughts there, Paul? I'm just, I mean, this, the simplicity, I mean, the way you're explaining it, Kelly, um, but the simplicity of it, and and obviously that's down to your skill and experience as a, uh, 
as a practitioner, as an experienced a practitioner. But when when I listen to this, um, and there's you know there's elements of deja vu, um, you know when I look into my past around this this kind of some of the words and the you know the um, the things I'm hearing. But the way it's coming across, Kelly, is just, and I think you know this is an epitome for mastering the game of life or working towards that in general. Wherever we can find that simplicity is where the big answers are, isn't it? And listening to you, this sounds so simple, stroke logical. That's that's my kind of overriding reaction at this moment in time. Yeah, and I think that's something I remember having one of those breakthrough moments when I started doing all this work and studying all the science behind relationships. And I was also taken back by how simple some of the solutions are it doesn't mean that they're always easy but they are very simple and once you start to understand sort of the theory behind why these things work and you start to understand how other people think you know again I'm referring to the six human needs as always when you start to grasp that things become much easier to solve and if you can take yourself out and that's the one of the biggest values of working with a therapist or a coach or a counselor or something is they can help you sort of get out of the emotion of the moment and walk you through a very simple process that can help dramatically change your experience. And all these tools that I use with my clients, I mean, they always come back and say exactly what you're saying. It was so simple. I wish I'd known that years ago, but Oftentimes it takes somebody to show you step-by-step step how it actually works before you can internalize it and then make it work for yourself. Mm. I think it's that classic teacher adage, Kelly, isn't it? A good teacher will point to you where to look but not tell you what to see. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I love that. Mm. Right. So let's just wrap up this uh, the fourth one here with the last of the horsemen, which is stonewalling. Um, and stonewalling is basically um, a mechanism that people use to disconnect from their partner to create distance, but it often comes across very arrogantly. And so you'll see things coming up like the silent treatment. I think everyone's familiar with that. But it can also be things like this um, one word answer mumbled under your breath that yes, no, maybe, whatever, you know, those kind of things. Or it can be changing the subject, um, basically saying, I'm not going to talk to you about that. Or storming out of a room, leaving a discussion. And there's two important things for dealing with stonewalling. So one is learning um, to read your partner's cues and understand when they or when yourself are getting overwhelmed by a situation. Um, you know, so they might have certain mannerisms. It could be they start rubbing their forehead or pulling on their hair or something. And when you notice that, you need to, to recognize it's time to take a break. And then you need to have a rule that you agree with each other before a heated discussion to say, okay, when we're in a conflict situation, we both agree that we're going to take a break. We're going to calm down, do something for ourselves that's either soothing or distracting calm down and then we agree to come back and continue that discussion when we're both in a different state of mind. And mm -hmm. so it's important that you never walk out of a discussion without having that agreement in place, you know, and 
sometimes when discussions are really overwhelming, it might just be, look, I need to take our 20 minute time out. I'm going now. And that's enough that your partner doesn't feel that the trust has been so badly broken that they don't know, will you come back? You know, where are you going? What's going to happen? But that you set the parameters for that. It builds trust in that situation. And then it allows you to come back and hopefully have that discussion with a very different um, physical state than you were in the moment. And I suppose the beauty of that is you've pre-agreed that, I don't know if contract is the right word, but certainly that rule, that strategy, call it what you will. If that's pre-agreed and both parties have bought into that, it, it really does make it acceptable, doesn't it? You know, if things are, you know, reaching a certain point where, you know, I, I just need to back off from this because you can feel it getting heated or going down a certain path. Mm-hmm. But like I say, to have that pre-agreement actually nullifies that all that uncertainty even indirectly kelly that we're referring to the the six human needs by bringing in the (laughs) word uncertainty um yeah yeah, so uh, okay yeah that um you know that stonewalling is a powerful one as well isn't it Mm -hmm, definitely so we've talked about you know the things that can really undermine a relationship Um, But this is the discipline of honorable language. So it's not only not using damaging language, but it's also recognizing that there's language that can contribute to the health and the growth of your relationship. And that's using language that reflects love, admiration, and praise. And uh, I don't remember if I read this in a children's book or a relationship book, so I apologize for this, but it doesn't matter because it holds true in both cases. Um, And it's don't try and catch somebody doing something wrong. Um, Look to catch them doing something right. And I think whether it's your child or your spouse, it's such a great piece of wisdom. So, um, and this is what it's about. You know, when you see them doing something that makes you happy, tell them. You know, thank them for it. Show appreciation and gratitude. Um, Those are the things that we do in the beginning of relationships that come so naturally. But as time goes on, we stop doing them. And I encourage everybody to be aware of this and to actively go out and continue to tell your partner, you know, how much you appreciate some little thing they've done or how proud you are of them for something. And bringing more and more of that language into our relationship creates more positive and good feelings. And it, like you always said, it um, pays into that love tank and builds up Mm. reserves in there for the times when you do have conflict. So it's important. And uh, I mean, I love, when I think of, you know, some of the couples that I've worked with over time and I see how they've changed from the beginning of our work together to the end of our work together and, you know, I, I hear the words that they're using and that appreciation and gratitude. It always makes me so excited um, to see that from a couple who came in fighting and saying, you know, we're, we want to get divorced. We've had it. There's nothing left. We've grown apart. All those sort of common things that I hear. And then to see them looking at each other after our work together and to see that admiration and love re-sparked is, for me, one of the greatest rewards of the work that I do. Mm, I can, yeah, I can only imagine on that. 
Yeah. Because yeah. when you look at it, Kelly, uh, and also listeners, I mean, you know, reflect a moment, if you will, on your own lives about, you know, um, I know Kelly and I have done a previous episode around, you know, time, love and money, which matters most. But when you when you weigh it up, I mean, surely love and relationships and, you know, I'll bring it back to the relationship with ourselves. It doesn't really get any more focused or any more beneficial than that, does it? You know, it is about that positive, warm, loving emotion. And it is about us holding that to ourselves and then being able to give it to, you know, to our partner, to our spouse um, and to our loved ones in general. Mm -hmm. For sure. Mm. So, OK, I mean, at the risk of sort of finishing on a uh, a more negative stroke challenging aspect, Kelly, what are the things that we should never, ever say? So one of the other ones that's very predictive from science of the end of a relationship is threatening to leave the relationship. Mm. And uh, I do a lot of work with um, relationship attachment styles. And there's four different attachment styles. And one of the attachment styles, the anxious, is notorious for using um, threats to leave as a way to elicit validation in the relationship. And it is so dangerous. So when we talked about making a contract, I actually recommend couples um, have their own relationship 10 commandments. And one of the commandments that I almost always insist they have in there is that we promise to never ever threaten each other to leave the relationship because that in itself breaks down the trust. You've, you've taken away the security of your relationship when you threaten to leave. And it's very difficult to repair that. So um, if that's been said in the past, you know, I suggest to a couple that as of today, you set that as one of your commandments and you promise to never, ever say it again in the future. So that's a very this, important one. There's something, and this is totally left field off Pat, Kelly, and I don't even know where this came from. But one of um, my illustrious mentors from the past was a certain very, well, very, very well-known football manager by the name of Brian Clough. And he spoke about this in the context of his his players, um, not his personal relationship, which he never spoke about. But it, you know, it just, I don't know, I draw a parallel and I just offer this listeners as a bit of humour, which might fall completely flat on the ground, but I'll, I'll offer it anyway. And Cloughy used to say when his players used to come in with a, a potential disagreement, Cloughy had a one-liner that says, right, okay, so we spoke about it for two minutes and then we decided I was right. <laughs> Which is totally, totally nothing to do with what we're talking about. So we move on. <laughs> I'm, I'm not feeling the red thread there, but I'm sure we're going to come back to that at some point, Paul, because somehow we always circle around and it all seems to fall into place, doesn't it? It does indeed. It does yeah. indeed. I, I knew it would fall on the ground, but anyway, as you say, we move on. We move on. <laughs> so the other thing that uh, research, this is all based on research, and it says that... Um, in, you should never, ever say to your spouse, F you. Um, this is one of the most disrespectful things you can say. And again, it erodes that um, trust and it creates um, feelings of worthlessness. So avoid using, we call it the F-bomb in Canada. I don't know if that relates in, in the UK, but avoid using the F-bomb when you're talking to your partner. 
Um, mm. And then the other one is I hate you. I mean, I think we're taught that as young children, right? We should never use such language and say, I hate you. But hate is such a powerful word. And, yeah. you know, you can hate something that somebody's done. But when you hate the person, again, it comes back to this um, disrespect and this feeling that, you know, you're better than the person that um, they've done something they can't come back to or they're as a person, their personality and characteristics are not acceptable to you. So hate should be stricken. And then, as I mentioned, um, the you statement. So you are a whatever, fill in the blank. Um, so those are the four um, statements that I always recommend that you avoid using. Mm. So we will finish on a very, very positive note, Kelly. But before we come to that, uh, that final moment, um, I just ask with you to share with us your, your contact details, how listeners can reach out, find out more about you. Yes, as always, you can contact me via my website at kellybrandley.com. That's K-E-L-L-Y-B-R-A-N-D-L-I. And if you visit kellybrandley.com forward slash mastering the game of life, you can download a free copy of all the 10 disciplines of love um, that you can use as a reference guide to help you in your relationships. Superb. So the, you know, we, we've been as, as is our way and I'm still struggling on that red thread myself um, around Cluffy, but uh, as, as is our way, Kelly, we've been all over the metaphoric dance floor. Um, but let's finish on a really positive, you know, ah, this, this may be the red thread, you know, this one liner. So give us a quick one liner Clough style around a real positive way forward in terms of honorable language. Oh, you always put me on the spot. I should prepare for these better. <laughs> um, I mean, as I said at the start of this for me, honorable language is one of um, the often the most challenging ones for people to do. Again, it's a discipline. It's something you need to practice. But I encourage everybody to walk away practicing using words that talk about love, admiration, and praise with your partner. Okay. Kelly, immense gratitude once again. Thank you so much. Thank you, as always, Paul. Next time, if I'm going to be the host, I think I'll uh, I'll have to ask you some of the on-the-spot questions. <laughs> um, is there anything that I know honourable language that says tit for tat? No? <laughs> <laughs> Ooh, we'll start there next time. <laughs> <laughs> we'll start there next time so there we have it listeners and uh, it's, it's, listen isn't it good to inject a bit of humour into proceedings whatever you're talking about you know this is serious stuff that Kelly's opening our eyes around it, it's fascinating stuff because isn't relationships the whole essence of, of who we are as people without them then you know what have we really got so um, I think that's very appropriate to sign off by saying remember Mastering the Game of Life starts by embracing our hearts. Thanks very much for listening to this Mastering the Game of Life podcast episode. If you found it interesting and helpful, drop a line to Paul via paul at paul-low.com with any thoughts or questions you may have. He'd love to hear from you and he'd be more than happy to respond. Alternatively, check out Paul's website at www paul-low.com. Remember, mastering the game of life starts by embracing our hearts. 